Welcome, everyone, to the Progress City Radio Hour, another Town Hall episode. I'm here with my brother, Michael. How are you doing today, Michael? I'm doing great. Uh, Happy, as always, to have another Town Hall under the belt. I know it's been a little bit since we've had one, and excited we're kind of between two future world motifs and we have someone who has experience with both uh, michael who are you talking to today well you're right uh, it's it's somebody who had their fingers in a lot of pies in future world so it we could slot them in anywhere really but i'm very excited to speak to mr davy fighten animatronics animator extraordinaire Uh, Really excited to talk to him because this is someone who I did not know his name growing up, but I knew him because when you look back in Disney news magazines and in Disney Channel special, you know, Dateline Disney, (laughs) Dateline Disney on for some new ride. Anytime you see somebody programming an animatronic, it was usually, you know, this guy. So I always thought of him as. That's the uh, animatronic guy. It turns out it's Davey Fighton. Yeah. I mean, like you said, he would be there. He was just everywhere on those things. And it was real cool, you know, technology piece of what they were showing off. And they showed it off a lot. Absolutely. And just the advances in the technology over the years. We're going to talk about him with that. But, you know, he started off as an animator very interesting place with some very interesting people. So we're going to talk about that and, you know, uh, just what a career he's had touching so many iconic figures. And I, I feel like whenever Disney has a wave of innovation, it leads with the animatronics because you think of when the sort of a one hundreds came out, that was a big deal. And the sort of early nineties, when we started getting all these advanced figures like timekeeper and, uh, uh, you know, all that new Tomorrowland stuff in 94 was very advanced. So mm-hmm. uh, animatronics was always a very visible way of measuring progress at Imagineering. And uh, Davey was right there with it. So I'm really excited to be able to talk to him. Yeah. Well, shall we go to your interview with Davey? Absolutely. Let's hear it as uh, we welcome Davey Fight. Say today, we'd like to welcome a true master of animation, both dimensional and on screen, Mr. Davey Fighton. Davey, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Thank you. Really glad to have you. You know, you're a person who's probably best known for your work in the field of audio animatronics, but you got your start as a traditional animator. Uh, what drew you to animation in the first place? I, I, I'm not sure what drew me there. I tried several different art schools. And I didn't like anything that um, they presented. And the one school that I visited was Cal Arts, and I really liked their program in the Disney animation. At the time, I really knew nothing about animation. Um, but yeah, I just didn't like the other schools, and I really liked um, either Art Center or Cal Arts. And I did like automotive design, but I did uh, like animation when I started looking into it. You were at CalArts at a 
kind of an amazing time and studied alongside, uh, besides yourself, a lot of other notable names. Uh, what are some memories of your time there? You know, we were all just a bunch of friends. I mean, sometimes I'd go skiing with John Lasseter and Joe Ramph was there and he was always a comedian. We would dress up as clowns and the doodah parade together and do goofy things. Uh, one time for Halloween, we went out and stole pumpkins out of a pumpkin patch to decorate uh, the Halloween event at uh, Cal Arts. And he, he told me, he, I remember him saying that was like the most memorable time, memorable time that I've ever had was stealing pumpkins with Davey. <laughs> so uh, I didn't think it was that big of a deal, but yeah. And I mean, uh, Tim Burton was there, uh, you know, I go out and have dinner with them and we would do stuff and Brad Bird was there, John Musker. And, you know, you go out and eat with these guys sometimes and do things around the place, but everyone was pretty studious. Tim was the same as he is now in his films as he was in Bell Arts. Like he didn't change. He was still making this really bizarre Haunted Mansion type films and those strange characters that he'd come up with. But we just assumed that was Tim and he would never go anywhere. <laughs> right. I love the old uh, footage. They've put out on, I guess it was maybe Waking Sleeping Beauty, where they had, I guess it was last year's old home movies of, you know, going and, and you know, here's Tim Burton. And it's, you know, it's clearly same old Tim Burton there do, working on his weird little drawings. And, you know, the same, I saw, I looked at your IMDb and saw that you had a credit on Vincent. Is that correct? No, I, I didn't work on Vincent, although I, I was working for Disney at the time and um, knew about it. And I'd go over there and hang out and watch him. But about the only credit I got was picking up a pushpin off the floor and putting it into the wall. So <laughs> that's about all I did. Was that an exciting time to be? Because that was such an odd time for animation because you had all this creative talent coming up in your group but the studio itself wasn't doing so hot. Was that an exciting time or were you guys, you know, worried about the way things were going? I, when I first started at, I only went to CalArts two years and they offered me a job um, at the studio. And uh, I also had a full scholarship, so I was weighing which way to go. But we all kind of didn't feel good about, you know, the films that were coming out. It just wasn't our style. We didn't like it with all the music. I mean, we often complained about it when we'd have lunch together and, you know, meet in the hallways or whatever. And even John Musker would, you know, he didn't like it. And John Lasseter didn't like it. And I remember when we were at Pixar working, when I moved up there uh, later on, even then John and um, John Lasseter and Joe Ramp and those guys were saying, hey, man, we don't, we don't want to have all these songs in our film. <laughs> You know, they eventually put one song in that was added, you know, in Toy Story 1, the right. first Toy Story. But that was like an afterthought. We realized it was the best way to go um, just to uh, get the story point across real quickly. That's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that. but And it wasn't even, it wasn't characters breaking into song. It was a song over kind of over the movie itself. Yeah, it was a series of shots and just a song over on top of them rather than the characters singing, right. you know. So um, they felt it was okay for that. But 
Yeah, they, they specifically didn't want those songs and they're trying to get away from the traditional Disney way of doing things. When you came, did, now, did you work on Fox and the Hound? Is that what you worked on? It? Yeah, we started working on Fox and Hound and I don't think anybody liked it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, to be honest with you, I was really bored with it. I was just, it, that was mostly me, but I was really burnt out from the animation because I had finished an animated film at Cal Arts and I was working day and night, seven days a week, really killing myself trying to get this film done just so I could get a job at Disney. So I got the film done and I, I got a job at Disney, but then when I went to Disney, I didn't want to do animation. I just was like, oh, I'm too burnt out. But, you know, I eventually, you know, showed up every day and, and worked wasn't crazy about the film. I mean, it was okay, but we just had like really way out ideas, I think all of us, because we were all really young. Right, right. You really wanted to sort of push into new things, I would assume. Yeah, we were always playing gags on each other. That's the other thing. Oh yeah? So when when I was at the studio, I, I eventually got offered a job over at Imagineering shortly after that and i just i didn't even know what imaginary was i mean i knew they did something with the theme parks but i didn't, didn't know anything about them i went over there and they said hey um we'd like to hire you and we want you to program these audio animatronics and i was like what you, you mean robots right <laughs> well we call them audio animatronics we, we don't use the word robot. I go, oh, so it's a robot. Okay. So they showed me and I was really blown away. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And they, they showed me the auctioneer for Pirates of the Caribbean. And they actually had a, a real one, not the one at Disney, a brand new one that they're going to be sending to Tokyo when they do Pirates for Tokyo. Right. And they made him and had the brand new Anaconda and everything. And they sat me down. I got to play with it and I broke it a few hundred times and caused <laughs> all kinds of problems. And I thought they were going to fire me because I, I I kept breaking everything. And they come over and say, no, no, we want you to break. That's the whole point of it. We want you to find all the problems with it and tell us what's breaking down and, and what doesn't work so we can fix it before we hire all the other animators, you know? So, yeah, and so I managed to constantly break it. But what happened is after I was there and after I broke it a few times and and they had to then go back and rewrite the software because they also asked me to come up with new ideas and new ways of programming the figure. Mm -hmm. So there was little tools I realized they were missing because I kind of learned from, you know, drawing animation and 2D animation, you know, exactly how to do it with in-betweens and slow in and slow out um, in what they call an ease in enable button so that it wouldn't jump real quickly in one frame, you slowly ease in over a few frames. Mm -hmm. And you could also slow in or slow out at the end of a line or at the beginning of a line. So they created those tools and put them in. But that all that stuff took time so a lot of times they said, well, okay, we don't have anything for you for the next couple of weeks. Go do something else. <laughs> so I worked in the department, in the animation department at Imagineering, where it was also the same department as special effects, right? 
Okay. And we all share the same offices and stuff. And so we talked and chatted and stuff. And and Bill Novi, he mm-hmm. uh, was in charge of the special effects. And he was asking me one day, who, do you have any idea who the guy was who did all the special effects for the big Halloween party at CalArts? And I go, well, that was me. He goes, oh, my God, we've been trying to find you. We want to hire you. I go, well, I already work here in this department. <laughs> yeah. They go, oh, my God, oh, my God. He turns around and goes to my boss says, we'd like to hire him out of your department into our department. And Waythel Rogers, who was my boss, was amazing. He just said, uh, you can borrow him, but you can't hire him permanently, right? Uh-huh. But then the word kind of got out that I was an animator and, you know, I could do 2D drawing animation and computer animation. So they ended up putting me, um, they sent me back to the studio. They said, well, you're going to rotoscope. Like a rotoscope? Nobody rotoscopes anymore. <laughs> goes, yeah, but we need this for Epcot. We're, we're building Epcot. And some of our ideas, we just want you to rotoscope some humans walking in the background and they're just going to be silhouettes for, I think it was Spaceship Earth. They actually had me go back and do several of these. And I don't even know if they made it in mm-hmm. you know, to the show, but I had to do all this work. Well, they sent me to the studio, and the rotoscope machine is up in the attic where the beams are in the top <laughs> of the animation building. There's no sheetrock. There's no insulation. It's just this big, giant room on the very top floor. And um, it's scary and spooky up there and dusty. And it's just the machine and a little folding chair. And I would spend day after day up there just sweating like crazy because it was miserable. And I, I tried to get the rotoscoping all done. Well, anyway, I got really bored one day. And they had rat traps up there and mice traps because every now and then they, you know, get one up in the attic. Well, I got so bored as I, they had, Enter a mail where you could just mail to, you know, a person in another room or another building. And one day I just uh, caught a a mouse there in one of the traps. And I put it inside a film can and taped it up, right? And then I sent it to Tim Burton, right? And I thought, oh, this is going to be funny. And Tim got it, you know, and he cracked up laughing. He thought it was really funny. And well, he turned around and then put a little costume on the mouse. And then he felt, sent it to some other people. Um, I think Chris Buck was one of them who got it. John Musker got it. Uh, Brad Bird got it. And, and, and Guy Vasilovich got it. And it, they kept sending it around to everybody. And every single person added to the little mouse's costume. Uh-huh. Added little drawings in the film can and they decorated and really made it elaborate. This kept going on for a week. By then, the mouse was smelling really bad. But somebody finally sent it to this really pretty girl that was an animator there. She got it and she just screamed and screamed and ran down the hall and just threw a fit. Oh, and and of course that was the end of that gag. And I called <laughs> it Eric Larson's office, like, and he's gone. Oh, don't ever do that again. I was like, that was terrible. And I started to leave. He says, "Jesus, that was a funny gag. I wish I thought of it." <laughs> like, it's like, but anyway, so he was kind of he, 
he kind of Eric Larson was like cool with it, but he he had to just say something like, you know, you're you're bad boy, don't do it again. Yeah, don't do it again. But it's hilarious. Yeah. But but that's the kind of stuff we would do quite often. You know, quite often do characters and we mail them back and forth or draw them, and um, you had to be careful who you you did a character caricature of because if it was a producer, a director, or someone big wig who thought they were important or a manager, they'd get really mad at you if, you know, it wasn't a beautiful drawing. Right. So, yeah, some people are off limits. Which is against the point of a caricature in the first place, but whatever. (laughs) But anyway. That meant to be pretty. Well, who brought you to Wed? Was it Waithel? Yeah, he, um, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but anyway, he, he had gone to CalArts and saw my animated film I did. Mm-hmm. And um, he goes up every year, and he needed to hire a bunch of people for, you know, to program figures for Epcot. And he wanted to interview me, <laughs> but he didn't realize that I'd already been hired by the studio and was working over there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a friend who also worked at Imaginary, and they had recommended me and so forth. So anyway, I went over and saw Waithel Rogers. And, you know, they showed me the figure and all that. And and they really liked me and they offered me a job. Right. And I accepted the job. And it was really awkward because Eric Larson didn't want me to leave. He thought that was because they had already put a lot of time into trying to develop me and stuff. And I didn't see it being a problem because it was the same company, really. Yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. But there was, I don't know if I should say his name. I probably shouldn't. But anyway. An HR person hadn't interviewed me, so they did it incorrectly. They, they, Waithel met with me, he and Jack Taylor, they liked me, they agreed to hire me. And the HR person got really upset that he didn't have a chance to interview me. So he interviewed me and he started asking me all these trick questions. And I like, huh, what? And he's like, well, do you want to be a director if we offer you a director's job? I said, uh, I don't care. I was like, I'm just here for the animation job. But what if we offer you a job as a director? I said, yeah, sure. If that's what you want to give me, that's fine. But we already agreed on an animation job. Yes, but if you want to be a director, tell me now. <laughs> so it was kind of a tricky question. And um, I didn't understand what was going on, but he was trying to trick me. And so he he didn't hire me because he claimed that the way that I wanted to be a director. And not an animator. That's so weird. It was really bizarre. So I went back to Waythel and talked to him about it and explained. And, and then they argued about it. He and the HR person. And they worked it out. And then they said, well, we changed our mind. You can come work here. Because part of it was Bill Novi, who was in special effects, wanted to hire me. <laughs> so he kind of added to fuel to the fire. Say, hey, well, we'll take them. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, but so yeah, so then they brought me in and um boy, the first thing they did over there was <laughs> there was a guy named Yell Gracie. Yell was the king of special effects. He was really, really good. And um he was an older guy and uh ready to retire. And uh Bill was in charge of the department. They, they wanted me to work with Yo Gracie, and I, I I heard of him, but I didn't know anything about him. 
And they kind of took me aside and says, well, you know, Yale has a really sharp temper and will get mad at you for no reason. All right. So don't let it get to you. He does that to everybody. It's just part of working with him. I said, okay. So they were mocking up at the Tahunga building, which is a new building that Disney purchased to do all this Epcot stuff. Mm-hmm. It was right by the airport. And I was one of the first people over there with Yale to mock up special effects for Epcot. And mostly what I was doing was these 10 by 10 projectors of different effects, fire effects, uh, snow effects, rain effects, um, the sun um, rising up and going down. And we're working at every single pavilion, some type of effect for everyone. So we, I probably had 10, 15, 10 by 10 projectors and different artwork that I was putting on. And you have this big plexiglass disc and it rotates and I have to project it onto a wall. Okay. Um, what Yale didn't drive, and I don't know what happened, whether he never learned how or he got his license taken away. I have no idea, but for some reason he didn't drive. So I had to drive him all the time. And so he would, I would go over there at Tahunga, do all this work. And then at the end of the day, I'd have to go back to WDI and pick him up and bring him and show him the effects and then take him back to Imagineering, right? And boy, if you didn't do everything right, drive correctly, make the right turn signal, turn at the right spot, you know, have your effects all done, he'd get really mad at you just for the stupidest reason. And that was really hard to take. (laughs) Anyway, what I was getting to was that the building was infested with Black Widows everywhere. I mean, there's just hundreds and hundreds of them. And I had all these 10 by 10 projectors on the floor and all these extension cords running to them. And there was no tables. There was one folding chair for me to sit on and that was it. <laughs> and, and, and there was five other guys and they worked at the far end of the building, the other end, uh, mostly setting, mocking things up, you know, the, the, the wood shop area and, you know, um, putting up shelves, getting the bathrooms ready before they started bringing everyone over to start, you know, building Epcot. And um, we all complained about the Black Widows. And you had to be really careful because you'd, you know, reel up your extension cord and there'd be one every two feet on the cord. (laughs) You'd have to flick it off and then a couple more feet and then you'd find another one. You'd be careful about sitting on the toilet or sitting in your folding chair if there might be one on there or under it. It was horrible. So then one day, two of us out of the six people both got bit by Black Widows. Fortunately, and then they kicked us all out of there and they fumigated the whole building. And we couldn't go in because until, you know, they got rid of all the Black Widows. And then after that, it was fine. (laughs) So It's the hazards of Imagineering. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know. What other story you want to know? Well, you know, I, I wondered, you start off, how did you learn about animating, uh, just the nuts and bolts of animating an animatronic? In old photos, you know, all my life, I like as a kid, I got like Disney news. I'd always see pictures of you sitting at this console with, you know, the human figure on it or whatever. And, you know, working at this console. How did the system work at that point in time? 
how did you learn how to do that? Um, Waythel kind of went over it with me, but because uh, they use a very similar anacon. It was a white one that everybody drew on. And by the way, Waythel made it very clear that I was not allowed to draw on the anacon any cartoon characters. It's okay <laughs> if Bill Justice does it, but I am not allowed. Okay. And I thought, oh, that's so unfair. So I never drew on it because they made that really clear, you know, and it's almost like we're going to fire you if we catch you drawing on it. So I never did. But most of it was I taught myself. And I mean, Waythel explained to me, we'll start off with doing the mouth first because then you'll start memorizing all the dialogue once you get the mouth all in sync. And um, then uh, you go on to the head move, the head nod, head turn, head tilt. And from that, you then add the torso moves. And from that, then you add uh, possibly the the body moves down at the base, um, or you do all the arm moves and start adding one arm at a time. And there's usually about seven functions per arm. And you kind of would mock it up, pre-plan it, knowing what arm moves you're going to have where on what line. So sometimes I would write out all the lines and, and kind of think it out and say, okay, I want an arm move on this line and one on that line. And start thinking about what kind of arm move that I want. And then where do I go from there? So if I go out here with an arm move, I have to bring it back at some point. And I then may go out with this, or then I may go out with both arms. So you had to plot out and try and figure it out. <laughs> and the hard part was, is you had to think about all the moves that are related. So if you're doing a head turn, you also have to think about the torso twist that also turns the body. And then you have a body twist that also turns it. And it, uh, a torso side bend can, can kind of turn it. The torso side bend can be in sync with the head tilt. So all of those things kind of interact together. So you you had to think ahead of time how far you could turn the head turn because knowing that you're going to have to add the torso twist later in the body twist and turn it even more. In the beginning, I was turned it too far and I would have to completely redo the head turn um, all over again because I just turned it too far around and it wasn't looking to the audience or looking where you wanted. And a lot of times you get up afterwards and you'd, you'd stand in the background and or where the audience is and look to see if eye contact with the figure is made with the audience it's really easy to get the eyes off where the figure is looking up at the ceiling or down at the floor not at the audience so you always had to correct that and fix it and i started learning tricks with it after a while how to punctuate words by um snapping the head nod down on specific words so it would read from a distance and I, I did that a lot of times in american adventure and lincoln and in main figures where they're on a stage to really punctuate it and the same thing with the hand motion and after a while you start learning that you don't want to put a hand motion in for every single line every now and then you just want to not move the arms at all if you want the facial features, like if you have cheek or lip moves that are really interesting and appealing, those will not show up if all the other arms are moving. 
So you have to basically not move any arms, any fingers, any hands if you want to show all the facial features, um, like any kind of muscles or twitching. The newer figures started having a lot of muscle interaction in the face and lip moves. And um, those would read really well, but they would not read at all as soon as you started adding arm moves in there. Right. Arm moves overpowered it. Right. Were you, at this point, was everything recorded on like reel-to-reel tape? How how were you storing like these commands? We had a reel-to-reel um, a tape machine next to us just to play the soundtrack, which mm-hmm. was irritating because you had to rewind it each time. But it had... So every time you had to go back and and do another pass and do it again, you'd have to rewind that tape. And then they had to be in sync and start at the same time. So there was a time code that was on the computer mixed in with the tape. So you um, everything was always in sync that way. Yeah, as for the computer, it was just a time code that was playing. And you could see it on the machine where it was, you know, mm-hmm. for what frame you're on. So aside from just the animation itself, I mean, your job grew so far beyond that to, you know, staging figures and staging them within the attraction and, you know, a whole other sort of array of things. Aside from Waythel, is there anyone else you learned from about like how to stage an animated scene, how to stage a, a scene in a show? Yeah. I mean, as you work on this, all, all these shows, um, you really start learning from it because you're constantly studying it. You're trying to improve it as much as possible. And I think one of the reasons why I really improved because I was always practicing. When other people were, you know, waiting, they're fixing something else or doing something, I'd sit at the console and I I would try different techniques and different ways of doing something and combining functions to create a certain type of arm motion or a certain personality. And at the same time, I started working with the directors of every show, and especially Waythel Rogers taught me this a lot. And then eventually Mark Davis taught me even more. Mark Davis was like the very best as for staging. And when I worked with Warwick Kimball on um, World of Motion, he was always talking about staging because the figures really didn't move that much in that show. they're really limited so staging had to be you know spot on perfect um, because you just basically read read it as a a stage scene Mm -hmm. Um, and working in Pirates of the Caribbean was another good example learning how to stage really well so from all those guys I, I started learning techniques of how to do it how to spread the feet apart how to have them at the um right angle to where the viewer is passing by on the boat or walking by or viewing it on stage. After a time, I started learning that when you build a figure, you have to build the figure correctly before it even gets to the animator. And Waitha was really good at that. He would go through, you know, and, and meet with everyone in Mapo and, and position the legs just right and position their arms and make sure the anatomy was always correct. And um, I started picking up on all of that. But where I think I really learned is from Mark Davis, because I had the ability to go in and look at his artwork all the time. Mm -hmm. 
Um, Bear Band was a great, great example when I worked on that and Pirates of the Caribbean working on it. Um, and American Adventure. He was like the very best at staging. And, and just his poses were just amazing. And when it got to the point when I did Splash Mountain at Disneyland, they asked me to completely restage that whole show because it was so poorly done um, in the, the first time they did it. And it was just a complete mess. And, and I told them I wouldn't work on the show. I wouldn't animate it because I, I, I didn't like it. It was horribly done. And uh, Bruce and Tony said, hey, um, whatever you want to do, if you want to restage it, tear out all the figures, um, have at it. We'll, we'll support you 100%. And, and they did. And I said, the first thing I want to do is I want to throw 10 figures away out of Splash Mountain and because they make no sense. And I want to move almost all the figures and restage them and group them so that they read to the audience better. That meant changing all the lighting, changing the speakers, rerunning all the wires to the cabinets. I really thought everyone would hate my guts, you know, for doing that. But I um, say actually, it made you real popular with the estimators. Well, yeah, it wasn't just the estimators and the cost, but it was the maintenance crew that had to do all that work and the lighting people and the uh -huh. sound. When everyone saw what I was doing and they really liked it. Like nobody got on my case about it. They just, okay, yeah, he's fixing it. Because nobody liked it the first time they saw it. it. It just looked awful. So yeah, we really fixed it up and really improved it. Then they carried all those stage improvements to um, you know, uh Splash Mountain in, in Florida and Tokyo. And and Joe, um Joe, who's the director of Splash for those, uh he um basically let me you know do whatever i needed and um we worked really well together and we knew each other from cal art so um that turned out really good but the first one was tough so how did you improve i mean that those are such the the different splash mountains are such beloved uh, legendary experiences how did you plus it up for florida once you had a chance to have like have another go at it, um, we added figures. We want to add a lot of rabbit figures, um, so the story made sense. And um, uh, we wanted to. I started learning over time how to um, put what what I call free animation by putting props in the figure's hand, mm -hmm. so the fingers didn't look so stiff, and the figures wouldn't look as stiff if you had them holding a fishing pole or if they had, you know, a guitar in the hand or something like that. Um, they just looked so much more alive. And, and, and if you, whenever you saw a figure that didn't have any props in their hand, they always looked too stiff. So a lot of times I added little props or little techniques as well as things that would just dangle and swing and move around like something on the end of a fishing pole, like a boot mm -hmm. or, or a fish or something like that. Um, would add a lot of free movement and without an actuator. And that just added more life to the figure. So we started doing all those little things to um, splash for Tokyo and splash for um, uh, Florida. And Joe was really good artist and really good at staging. So he was a step ahead of me. And I came up with a few other ideas 
one was this hopping rabbit and Joe really liked the hopping rabbit idea and we never even attempted to do something like that with the animatronics so uh, you know I showed him and said hey I think this will work and we ended up putting it in and it was pretty cool people yeah. looked at it like, wow you know how the heck did they do that and we added a bunch of cool rabbit scenes so the story just worked better and flowed better and the other thing is we started putting in is I learned how to put pauses in between scenes so there's actually nothing so you'd go from seeing a really nice scene about geese and you go around the turn and there'd be nothing but maybe rocks and trees there would be no figures and you could create kind of a sound barrier and a light barrier so that as you went into the next scene it wouldn't um move all that light and sound into the next scene and wash it out and, and disturb it so you started i started learning how to um create these walls uh, so to speak to cut off the sound cut off the light for the next scene so the scenes were more separated yeah. and not just for visually to help control the sound bleed and the light bleed right yeah and it worked it worked beautifully well, you mentioned American Adventure before, and that is such a massive show, such a technological achievement. It's, you know, it's 40 years on now, and it's still just incredibly impressive thing to watch happen. What was it like working on that show? Um, well, first of all, it's just a great show, yeah. you know, and we could tell it was a great show from just as soon as we were in the theater, just seeing everything. But man, it was really complicated, you know, and I really had to be the best, best of my game when it came to programming those figures, because some of them are really hard to do. Um, you know, Ben Franklin walking was really difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the characters on the scenes, um, Susan B. Anthony could catch her hand inside the railing. Same with uh, Mark Twain um, and Will Rogers with the rope. Uh, it physically wouldn't work the first few times I programmed. Taxi said, well, Dave, just do the rope tricks yourself. Just program it. And I go, hey, I know nothing about road rope tricks. I, I can't do that. I go, no, no, no. You'll figure it out. Just just do the rope tricks. And uh, I couldn't do it. So we came back and we added a wire inside the rope to help hold the shape. And from that, we were able to then control the rope well enough to where I could start twirling it around and, and make it look like he was doing rope tricks with it. That was one of my questions. Cause I, I've always wondered how in the world you were able to program that because the rope tricks, because it's an amazing thing to see happen, you know, even today. And I, I'd always wondered just how, how do you program something like that? Yeah. Um, and there, there's effects that are sometimes tied in like Thomas Jefferson and, um, he was sitting at behind a desk and I kept catching his hand on the desk. It was antique desk, but I really wanted to just get a saw up there and cut part of the desk out, the part that you didn't see so that I could not hit his hand on there because I kept breaking it. And the same with Susan B. Anthony, I, I catch her hand on the railing and FDR had the same problem. The hand was on the, the podium when he gave his speech. But boy, if you slipped up just slightly, or one function stopped working, you know, the hand would get caught on that podium or railing and, and it would break something. Oh, wow. 
or or the arm would slip in the shaft here and then it was really difficult to try and reline up the arm and then you have to fix the broken you know lines inside of it and, and you could create a mess that took hours to fix so you had to be really really careful and after a while i started learning tricks and techniques and basically take the desk away from thomas jefferson and just take it away right right just have him up there without the desk do all the programming get it just how you want it, and then just put the desk back in and uh, i learned that my lesson when i was doing gomer on um the piano on the country bears mm -hmm. same thing is like i kept catching the his paws on the the piano and, and breaking them and i finally just moved the piano out of the way and then programmed it you know and, and sometimes i would take blue tape and i'd put tape across marking the height of exactly where the piano was or where thomas jefferson's desk was or i put cardboard up something like that so that if i did hit it you know i, I would just damage the cardboard or tape and um, until I got it just right, and then you could remove all that and, and put the prop back in. So I guess those figures can do some real damage if you're not careful. Yeah, we, you know, we had some funny stories at American Adventure. Is um, we had a ghost, so we called it. <laughs> and um, what happened is we started working night shift because during the day they had to have all this construction crew in there, you know working on the building and, and we just couldn't work at the same time so for programming we sw switched over to a night shift you know while the construction crews were all inside the building or underneath the the carriage and so forth like that because you couldn't have any construction crews in there or you you could hurt them or run over them with a carriage or something like that yeah uh so it's really a dangerous situation so you you wanted to be safe all the time so when we were working at night, we suddenly started having this problem where the figure would start like moving around really sporadic, like, you know, it was possessed uh, and, you know, start twitching really weird and spinning its head around and doing all these weird things. And everyone go, you know, Davy, stop, stop doing that. And I go, hey, I'm not even touching the intercon. I'm not, I'm not doing that. And it's like, stop it you know you're gonna break the figures like no no i i'm not doing that and we kept having the same problem right around midnight and then it would start off with will rogers i think was the first one who had this problem and then susan b anthony and then george washington had it and um we started nobody could figure out what was causing it we all thought it was some kind of ghost because it was always at midnight Mm -hmm. Then somebody had this theory, oh, they're testing at the, the the monorail system at midnight every night. It must be sending some type of electronic signal through the air, causing these figures to move. And nobody believed that, but that was one of the theories. And then they realized, wait a second, right at midnight is when the security guard always shows up, and he's got his radio going, and maybe his walkie-talkie is sending interference through the cabinet somehow. And it and he's causing the figures to twitch. And so they ruled that one out too. <laughs> so it kept coming back to me as if it was my fault, but it wasn't me. And there were times I actually would move back like five rows and not sit at the Anacon around midnight 
and it would start happening. And I go, hey, look, I'm not even by the anaconda. I'm not over there. Stop me. Yeah. So they couldn't figure this out. And I have pictures of this somewhere. They actually picked us all out of there and they disconnected all these cables to the figures that ran to the cabinets and they realized that it was wired incorrectly. And they had to rewire all these main wires and they're really long because they had to run all the way from the cabinets all the way to the figure on these carriages. So have a, a picture of these cables just running all along the floor at American Adventure as they're trying to rewire and figure this whole thing out. But once they rewired it, the, the ghost went away and we never had a problem like that again. Wow. That's, that is bizarre. But I would imagine with these complicated systems and, you know, everything was, all these computer systems were new and all this technology was new. I imagine there were just so many bugs you had to work out in the system. Especially, you know, you were talking about running these cables, like eventually weren't they running from, I mean, DAX, like Computer Central was on the other side of the park, on the other side of the lagoon. Uh, I'm sure that caused a lot of problems. Um, yeah, I was actually really lucky I had Eric Swap as my technical support person. Uh -huh. That guy was really brilliant, and um, and he could just hunt down and solve any problem. And so whenever he was fixing some problem, I would lay down on the floor and take a nap until he came back <laughs> and relaxed. That's always good. Try and get 15 minutes of sleep while he's hunting down a problem. And he would go back to Dax, you know, reboot the computer, find out what the problem is, or he'd go pull cards out of the cabinet and find the card that was shorting out and replace the card or whatever. And we constantly had to retune and readjust um, the figure for functions. If something got off or messed up, because um, it had to be really precise, the tuning of the gain, stroke, and offset which were these little knobs on the card, which controlled each function to have the right speed and the right range of motion. Because if you got off on that and started running the figure and it wasn't the stroke and offset were not in the right place, then the figure would then, you know, hit, you know, Thomas Jefferson would then hit the table or Ben Franklin wouldn't walk right or uh, Susan B. Anthony would hit her hand against the railing. So those couldn't be off at all. Yeah, they had to be really precise. But we constantly ran into, you know, issues, you know, first time. Um, all kinds of little bugs came up, everything from the Anacon to wiring to the cabinets to DAX. But, you know, the crew was really good. They figured it out. They always solved it. Um, and I got to take lots of naps while I was waiting. So, so I guess you were working... That was Rick Rothschild, right? Who was working on yeah. American Adventure, right? Yeah, Rick Rick was pretty good to work with. He was really intelligent and really knowledgeable about what needed to be done. He didn't get in our way. He always supported us. Um, yeah, he was really good to work with. I, I felt bad one day he, he split his chin open and got a bunch of stitches. Um, <laughs> so... And I felt it was my fault, but it, it wasn't. He was, I I made a big deal with Rick and, and the crew is not to sit right next to me because I have to concentrate and I usually have headphones on 
and I'm trying to get everything perfectly in sync. And I don't want someone sitting next to me writing and doing things and talking and chatting and so forth. And their their walkie-talkies going off. So I'd always make sure everyone's set far away from me. And they all kind of knew to do this. Because you, if you mess up, I have to start over and try and redo that whole section all over again if, if you know, someone interrupts me. Well, anyway, I made Rick sit a few rows back, and um, he had to get something off of my desk. And he was climbing over the chairs real fast, and um, he slipped and fell and, and hit his chin on the chair and split it open. And he came in the next day with stitches. And anyway, you got to be careful out there. Bad for him. <laughs> so. Well, I'd imagine the potential for injury. I mean, with that enormous machine that's backstage at that show there was all sorts of potential for danger there it's such a massive apparatus well one day i had to program i think it was all the mouth programming and there is a yeah i think that's what i was doing or maybe it was Laura rogers with the rope but i moved when normally when we we're programming the anaconda was on a piece of plywood that we mocked up it was center of the stage. I mean, center of the audience seats, mm -hmm. dead center and um, halfway up. And you can do, you know, the basic animation. But every now and then, if you had to program the mouth or, you know, program Will Rogers rope or something like that, I moved the anaconda onto the stage on a little four by four um, table, folding table and had a folding chair. But I'd be working three or four in the morning, and I'd be the only one there, or me and Eric, right? So when I was working, Eric would lay down on the floor, and he would take a nap. And if I broke something or something stopped working correctly, and he had to fix it, then I would take a nap. Mm -hmm. Well, this day, I was sitting there three or four in the morning trying to do some mouth programming, and um, Eric fell asleep right next to me, <laughs> right? But I was right on the edge of the stage where one step forward and you'd go right off the stage down where all the, the carriages are. Mm -hmm. Well, Eric was right next to me and he started rolling over to the point where he's gonna roll off the stage. <laughs> I would quickly all of a sudden like kick him with my foot and step on him. And he'd get really mad at me and like shove my foot away and try and roll over and I'd kick him again. <laughs> break him up and then we went back and forth and this went on for like 30 40 minutes he kept asking me stop doing that i said but you're gonna kill yourself you're gonna roll off the stage i can't have that he doesn't realize i saved his life but yeah he, he almost got killed that you know from doing that and we'd be so tired and exhausted that um you know it's hard to work all night and then go home at eight in the morning yeah so, I mean, you'd fall asleep at the wheel driving home or um, you just were delirious. So where were you staying on, on site in Florida? Where where did they have you put up? Uh, we were in the campground um, where they had the trailers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One day we were in, uh, Eric and I were working in World of Motion. And that was the first show that we worked on. And it didn't have air conditioning in, in the beginning. And it was in the middle of summer. And it's just boiling hot. 
I can't and he and I were just sweating like crazy. And it was the first show, and Waithel and Jack wouldn't buy us a table. We just thought that was the stupidest thing. You're spending a billion dollars on Epcot, and we don't have a table for the Anacon, right? And we had no folding chair. And and Waithel says, oh, we'll just stand. And, you know, here, here, just take the Anacon and just set it on that smelly trash can over there and, and work from that. The steel drum. And that's what we did for about a month. And we then have to roll the steel drum from scene to scene and set the Anacon. And I would have to stand there all day, never getting to sit down, sweating like crazy, trying to program these figures because they wouldn't give me a chair. And they wouldn't give me a table. And finally, Eric uh, said, screw this. And he just got all pissed off once. And then he he went down to, I don't know what it was, Walmart or Kmart or one of those. And um, he bought two folding tables, you know, uh, car tables. And he bought some folding chairs. Uh, one for me and him and one for, I think, Doug Griffith for their group, too. Well, we all had the same problem. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was so stupid. Well, anyway, um, because it was so hot, we finally, they started running the air conditioner in the evening, right? And we didn't like working when all the construction crews were in the way because they were constantly bothering you, you know? And they, they're making all kinds of noise. They're walking by in front of you. You're trying to move tools and supplies. Um and and they constantly want to ask you questions and they want you to run the show for them. And you just didn't have time to put up with these construction workers, you know, because mm -hmm. it was all day long. You know, there's a thousand of them on, in the building. So we'd switch over to night shift and try and program the figures then. And then when we did that, we got air conditioning. You know, we thought, oh, this is great. Uh, yeah. So we work all night till eight in the morning. One day we're getting toward the very last scene in World of Motion. We're working somewhere and we had to then move the Anacon in that little folding table and the folding chair and all the extension cords and everything to the very last scene, or one of the very last scenes. And um, so we moved it there and none of the vehicles are running, right? But they were testing cars and there's they're testing the vehicles and ride operators were practicing learning how to, you know, do their spiel and run the cars and turn them on and off and all that. And they were supposed to give us a warning um, when they did that so that we would be out of their way, way and we didn't get, you know, hurt. So we moved all this equipment um, down the track. We had to go back to get a couple little things. And um, all of a sudden we heard, uh, okay, we're starting up the the, the system. Uh, vehicles will be running in uh, five seconds. <laughs> it's like we're away at the other scene, and we're start running back to get back to it. Because, but we thought where we put all the equipment was out of the way, and it was sitting on top of the table. It turns out we forgot that those vehicles actually swing the back end around like in Haunted Mansion, and they. Mm -hmm started running, they swung around and they caught just the corner of the table and knocked out the leg of it and the anacon and everything slid down in the track and just chewed up the anacon and cut oh, off all no. the buttons and chewed up all the extension cords. It, I mean, it was a complete disaster. 
Was, I mean, how how expensive was one of those anacons at that point? How uh, much? Like Sixty-five, seventy thousand dollars, I think. And um, holy cow! I thought for sure I was fired. I thought that was the end of the world. You know, I thought. I oh. bet. And so you know, um, it was clearly an accident. But I went in and woke up Jack Taylor at eight in the morning at his trailer and told him what happened. He and Waythall and um they weren't real happy but they just said go go to your trailer and go to sleep (laughs) (laughs) they got us another anacon falling down and um they sent that one back to be repaired and um yeah i think they eventually got it all working again but it took a while i'd imagine that's one of those moments where time slows down like (laughs) as you're watching this sort of slowly happen yeah, I mean, you got to realize you're going on no sleep, you right? Know, and work all night, and not to make a mistake, and, and yeah, mistakes can happen. Well, you know, you mentioned World of Motion on our, the last episode of our show. We talked about World of Motion. What a massive show it was from just the sheer number of audio animatronics. How did you handle programming that many figures? I don't, I don't, that was the first show that I actually started working on, I think. And we mm-hmm. started locking it up at the Hunger Building and programming. And I think the balloon scene was the very first scene that I did. Mm-hmm. Lord Kimball was the art director on it. And um, he kept me going because he was always cracking jokes on me and pulling some fancy jokes. He was a complete comedian. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just never stopped with gags. And he was always pulling gags on me. He thought this was always fun to do. And I usually wasn't in the mood. But like one day he came in with a zipper undone. And he had a really long tie that I don't know where he got the tie, but it was twice as long as a normal tie. And it goes down out through a zipper hanging down in between his legs down to his knee. Right? Uh-huh. <laughs> in, acting like like there's nothing wrong you know he's dressed normal and i go word what the hell are you doing it's like pull your pants up and, and put your zipper back up it's like like people work here you know <laughs> you can't be doing it he goes gabe you don't get it this is the gag you're supposed to laugh i'm not laughing Ward. that's not funny <laughs> but he just he, he it was a gag like that all the time uh-huh. And transportation, a lot of times I didn't quite get what the gag was about. And there was a a, a stagecoach scene where there was kind of like a banker guy, um, bald-headed guy who stuck his head out the window. And um, they had Indians attacking or whatever. And it, he had an arrow in his hat and it was uh, into the wagon, mm-hmm. right? And... Um, he was supposed to then lower himself down and then raise back up as if he didn't even realize that his hat got shot off, right? And it stuck into. And for some reason, I, I didn't get that gag. <laughs> I had to keep asking Ward, what's going on here? Because I got to program this. How, how do you want this? And he's like, Dave, it's the gag. You know, you got to get the gag, man. It was like, <laughs> so he would explain to me exactly how it's supposed to go. But every scene was that way, you know, in the same thing where they had um, 
characters with different wheels holding them. And one was a triangle wheel and one was a round wheel and one was a square. And uh, <laughs> I go, come on, Warren, nobody's that stupid. Everyone can see that a triangle is not going to turn. It's like, no, Dave, these are the gags. you got to have these gags in here. It's like, and, uh, you know, I, I realized the whole show was that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, real, uh, you can definitely see his influence throughout that, throughout that whole show. Ball. Yeah. But he, he was a fun guy to work with. Really good at staging. Oh, yeah. Really, really good. You know, it's interesting because he, unlike a lot of other, like, ex-animators, like Mark Davis, people had come to come over to WED earlier, but he had kind of stayed in animation. He really hadn't done a lot of Imagineering work. So it's always interesting to me that he finally got, you know, got his chance to work in that sort of mode. Yeah, I don't know how he got that job or what. Uh, you know, they're probably looking for somebody skilled. I, you know, as I worked there more and more, I, I didn't realize how talented all these people were. And, you know, I just started going, wow, this guy Mark Davis is really amazing. And Ward is amazing. Exitensio was amazing. And I just, Sam McKinn just blew me away with his artwork. You know, and Frank Armitage and, and people like that. And um and there's so many artists and they're so good. I thought I will never be this good of an artist. I was like, these people are just so amazing. And and you know, one funny thing is, is Sam um McKinn started getting to know me um and kept asking for my help. And um on American Adventure and other shows. And for some reason, he thought I was a model. I don't know why he thought that. <laughs> he just, <laughs> hey, look, uh, he, he called up with Rogers and go, hey, you know, I need to borrow Davey to model some clothes. I, I need some dead guys in, uh, in the George Washington scene. I need him to dress up and play dead. <laughs> and uh, and Waitha goes, yeah, he's not doing anything. Yeah, go ahead, go over there. It's like, I go, wait, do I get paid anything extra? No, 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 no. Maybe we'll let you have a donut. But yeah, I dressed up in all these clothes and they had my size and everything. And, and a lot of those scenes in American Adventure, that was me is playing all these different people. Really? And, and, and Sam would, you know, um, just pose me in a certain scene out in the parking lot always. <laughs> You know, on cardboard boxes or just on the pavement, and um, or they set up some mock log or something like that, and uh, I can recognize myself in a lot of the scenes. But uh, they eventually, what's the the cowboy museum that's right down the street from WDI? Oh, the Autry. Yeah, the Audrey. They they had me pose for a, a big mural in there really and, yeah so that one's real obvious so some of my friends have teased me about that but um it just looked like a frontier guy with a rifle and you know clothes and so forth but well you had the name so they figured i guess so but yeah he, he just they used me for a lot of stuff uh, um and when we're 
the American Adventure had a miniature American Adventure model okay. um, that I don't know if you ever saw. It was pretty cool where all the carriages actually moved and, and the sets went up and down and the curtains closed. Cool. It was all had, you know, programmed lighting. All of it was programmed. And um, they were, when I first started working there, they were actually just trying to build it all. And this really smart guy, Mark Miller, who was like, amazing car mechanic um who could build anything you know he i ended up working as his assistant building this american adventure model and he would uh, while i'm waiting for this you know the the auctioneer to be ready and the anaconda to be fixed and all of that so i can start programming they would have me work building this miniature model and uh, Mark would say, oh, well, you're going to mill out all the parts for it. And I go, hey, I don't know how to run any of these machines. Oh, I'm just going to teach it. You know, you're going to learn today. And he would teach me how to use all these power tools and all these huge machines and mill out all these metal parts and hams and so forth. I had to make every one of those for that American Venture model. And then he'd start assembling it all. And uh, surprisingly, it all worked. And, you know. Um, it was pretty cool, but I never expected that to be part of my job. No, that's amazing. I've never seen that. Was that just to, to pitch the attraction or? It, it was a sales pitch to try and get investors to invest in, um, you know, their pavilion, you know. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it had a slideshow in it and the sets went up and down. And, and it was actually a very cool model. And. Uh, sometimes I would have to just run it for whoever the guest was coming in to see. Um, you know, they also had three heads of, uh, I think, American Adventure, and they had a little spiel of the three heads. And it was mm -hmm. Franklin and Mark Twain and I forget who all the third person Will was. Will Rogers was the Will third Will Rogers, guy. yeah. And they interacted and talked, but it was just, you know, animatronic heads. That's interesting. That was already... That was pretty much already done and working when I first started there. But the American Adventure model wasn't. I, I had to help build that. Would the heads just kind of spiel about what the attraction was going to be? Was that kind of the Yeah, they, they're, they're just talking and, and, and talking about American Adventure and some of the dialogue lines that are in the show. Interesting. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, there was um, a horrible event once is there's this guy who was an artist who was a young guy who was doing all the backgrounds for American Adventure. And um, there was several different scenes. In it. And he had to paint on glass and it was multi-plane. So he had to do several different planes and paint all of it on glass. And so it might be three to five rows of glass for you know the George Washington scene. Mm -hmm. Valley Ford scene, and there are some other ones. Really time consuming. When I was building the American Adventure model, he was like right next to me painting those scenes. And, you know, I'd always be watching him. And it was like, oh man, you're really good. It's like, I don't know where you have the patience for all this. I mean, it was really tedious work trying to paint on glass to create this multi uh, plane effect. Well, anyway, he, he got all done with. Um, the very last one, and they gave it to someone to ship over to the studio to film it all. And for some reason, they gave it to some 
guy in shipping that was like 18 years old or whatever. He had just started and he didn't tie anything down. And he took off in the truck and went around the turn. And as soon as he left WDI, the whole glass thing fell over and it shattered all the, the, the oh. all the artwork, all the pieces of glass, destroyed all of it. Ah, oh, and, and he wanted to quit. Mike wanted to quit. He was really upset and it, it was horrible. You know, I felt so bad for this guy. And he had to repaint the entire scene, all those glass paints. And I had to work right next to him. And he was like bitter and angry, like every minute. <laughs> and I was like, uh, I, I felt so sorry for the guy. I mean, he just didn't deserve that. That's brutal. Yeah. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask about the Ben Franklin you mentioned before the Ben Franklin. And this was such a big deal. I mean, I remember when the pavilion opened, like on every TV special, it would be like Ben Franklin, he walks. It was it was such a big deal. How did you go about doing that? Were there sort of unique challenges in making that happen? Yeah, it was pretty complicated because it was a combination of moves and trying to get them to the right speed. And um, I heard one guy once accidentally, um, and uh, I don't think he ever forgave me about that. But uh, when I was working on Ben Franklin, and we realized that you know, a lot of this was experimental. We had a rough idea, but we really didn't know. In this case, Ben Franklin's cane kept getting caught. Mm -hmm. So we had to remake the cane so it was like a breakaway folding cane, right? So that if it did get caught, it, it would flex and bend down at the bottom rather than it wasn't a real cane, in other words. Mm -hmm. The same principle with, you know, the rope for Will Rogers. We had to recreate that and, and, and do it differently by putting a wire in the rope. The Ben Franklin is, we couldn't quite get some things right, so we actually added props in front of them to hide some little bit of segments. So I started working with Rick Rothschild of how to hide it and what we could do and put in place so that some of the, the the track and lifting up his foot and making that look real was um it was hard to hit it precisely and and if it had compliance today we probably could do it exactly but it was a little slow and sluggish and didn't quite want to go the speed that i wanted it to go to look more human-like so we had to compensate and get around that um uh, but yeah, the cane was difficult in that track. But one day there was a, a maintenance guy who um, took care of the hydraulics and changing the valves and things like that. And um, I had asked them to go down to change some of the valves that were sticky and not working properly because they had to work really correctly. And some of those valves, uh, if they got sticky, um, the actuator could kind of jump like this right mm. with jittery where you just wanted to be nice and smooth so we'd have every now and then you'd have to swap them out and find one that works better well i didn't realize he was underneath the carriage and i, I had gone to the bathroom or gone for lunch and i came back and i thought he was all done and i went to go work on ben franklin i turned it on and i forgot to look underneath the carriage and he was down there and I I hit him right between the legs. Oh, no. <laughs> right where it counts with the cane, I think it was. Oh, oh no. 
he never was he never liked me again after that <laughs> you know and, and it was my fault i mean i was supposed to check and and i, and I didn't you know but you learn the hard way i guess i never thought of ben franklin the same way again after that i'm sure yeah he uh yeah, the you know, I mean, when we were doing the Hopping Rapid on Splash, Deborah Short was doing it for Splash for Tokyo, and um, she messed up. And I went over because I learned my lesson on Ben Franklin, and I never forgot it. And I remember going over with Deborah Short and explained to her, "Hey, you know, you got to be really alert when you're working on this rabbit." And you don't mess up and do things in the wrong order. You have to have ease and enable on. So it slowly goes back when you reset it to zero, zero as you're programming it. Because you don't want it to jump back in one thirtieth of a frame. Or it's going to go flying back to zero, zero through the whole track. It could hurt somebody or it could break the figure. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, one day she just got people interrupting in and constantly run asking questions and interfering and that was one of the dangers of having a lot of people around you bugging you while you're trying to program and she didn't put the ease and enable on and went back to zero and it flew back as fast as it could and, and broke the figure and damaged a bunch of stuff oh, no. and they had to you know rebuild it and um, fix it all but uh, she was she was in tears, <laughs> you know, and and I, I didn't want to say I told you so, but it's like I understood where she was coming from because I was in that same boat with Ben Franklin. I made the same mistake, mm-hmm. um, and I knew what happened when too many people are bugging you and interfering you, and you can't concentrate, you know. So, um, yeah, I can relate to, and, and I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't punish her for anything. It's just one of the horrible things about that job is, is um, you know, you don't have the privacy in the quietness that you really would like to have. Yeah, because it's a meticulous thing you're having to do. And you got to, you know, as one little mistake and you wreck the figure. So that's no good. You know, so I forget. Somebody told me it's it's like going into recording booth where you're recording a song with like a famous musician or band, right? It's like you would never, ever walk into the recording booth and start talking to the musician while they're recording live in the booth. Nobody would ever do that. No. The exact same thing with animatronics is you're recording live, you know? And it's like, so why are all these people coming up and bugging you? One guy, one day on the energy before, while I was working on the dinosaurs, and the dinosaurs walking, this big brontosaurus or apasaurus, whatever they called it. Um, I was trying to do that, and this construction worker suddenly just comes out of nowhere in a hard hat and vest and everything, stands right in front of me and says, hey, are you? I'm talking to you. I go, hey, man, I'm, I'm programming here. Get out of my way. You know, I can't see. He's like, hi. Hey, I bet you can make that dinosaur do a tap dance. If I give you five bucks, you make that dinosaur do a tap dance. Come on, I'll give you five bucks right now. And they go, get the hell out of here. He's like, please, I'm working. We're recording live, the red light's on. And he wouldn't leave me alone. So 
he went and told all of his construction buddies that I was making the dinosaur do a tap dance. And five minutes later, 10 construction workers come in. Hi, I, I hear you making the dinosaur do a tap dance. Come and see it. I go, no, you can't. I'm not doing that. And they go, well, he's he's a real ass. He he, he won't even show us the shows. And they would leave and they would tell 20 more people. And then they'd show up 10 minutes later. Oh, we hear you doing making the dinosaur do a tap dance. <laughs> this would go on all day that same day. It never stopped the whole day. It just got more and more construction workers all wanting to see the show. Wow. Strangely enough, we are not having the dinosaur tap dance. I, that's not in the actual show. Sorry, guys. Uh, yeah, I could see that would be frustrating. But, you know, for Universal Energy, you got, as you say, you got to work with these really massive animatronic dinosaurs. Aside from the tap dancing, that must have been pretty cool. They were, they they were so big and heavy that they're a little too slow for me. But oh yeah, they were cool looking. I really wanted to work on the show. Mm -hmm. I really like dinosaurs and stuff. I didn't like the track layout where it was like a big cement, you know, field yeah. with all these vehicles riding on it. It wasn't the same feeling like you got at Pirates, where you're in a nice cozy boat and you felt like you're really there in their world. Where here you felt like you're on, you know, a giant tram. And um, it didn't quite feel right, um, those big cars that they had. But the dinosaurs look great, and they're fun. I, I wish it was a water ride instead of this big cement, you know, track. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I, I was, I meant to tell you this one story, and I've been rehearsing it for a while. And I was really like, should I say this story or not? Because I might insult somebody. And it may be where you have to cut this out. I don't know. All right. But this really happened, and no one's going to ever believe it, but this really happened. Is an American adventure. A lot of times, um, we're, we'd be in American adventure, and it would be freezing cold. And I'm not sure why, because they had all the doors open. They're running the air conditioner. But it was running full blast to where it felt like it was 32 degrees in there. And I would have to wear like a ski jacket and gloves and put a towel around my legs, you know, trying to stay warm during the day. And outside it was like 104 degrees, you know, it was boiling hot. Mm -hmm. Really beautiful day in the summer. And, and Epcot was being worked on every pavilion. And a lot of times we all like to go out. Uh, at lunchtime and just sit outside in the hot sun and just kind of soak up the sun while we ate our lunch just so that we're in a nice warm you know area because we're so sick of being in the freezing cold air conditioning for hours and plus we kind of would like to see you know what's going on with all the constructions that's kind of would watching but something that happened quite often is that every now and then the construction workers and I don't know which ones. They're never Disney employees. I, I promise you that. I'm pretty sure they're. They would light the porta potties on fire, <laughs> and the porta potty would go up in this huge thing of black smoke. It really looked awful, like just billowing smoke. The fire department come and they put it out. They always had a row of about ten porta potties at every pavilion, uh -huh. right? And every week somebody would light one of those on fire. 
Well, anyway, this day we went out there and we're soaking up the sun and we had our lunch and everyone was kind of laying there relaxing. And this one guy who um, worked for our group, he wasn't our he wasn't in our department, but he kind of helped out um, with the cabinets and the cards and stuff like that. Um, he went to use a porta potty, just like all of us did, right? And we'll call him Melvin. That's not his real name, but for, for <laughs> this. Because I don't want to embarrass him anymore, but for the sake of discussion, poor, yeah. poor Melvin, he's he goes over the porta potty and he he takes a very middle one, right? And we saw him go in there, didn't think anything of it. A few minutes go by, and all of a sudden we see the porta potty on the left side of his on fire, right? And everyone goes, "Hey, there's a fire! The porta potty's on fire!" And all of a sudden. The one on the right side of him is on fire. Yeah, and he's yeah. in the one in between the two of them. And they're both on fire. And it's just a big giant fireball and just black smoke billowing up. And we're all screaming and yelling, you know, and Melvin, get out of there, Melvin, get out, get out, you know. And suddenly the door opens up and he has his pants all the way down to his shoes. And he's trying to get out of there with no clothes on, running for his life, not, trying not to get burned. We were all cracking up laughing, but it's like, oh, it was the most horrible sight. And I felt so sorry for the guy. He didn't get burned, but they lost three or four porta potties that day because then they spread to all the other ones. Oh, good grief. Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, it was, uh, I guess you had to be there for that one. (laughs) (laughs) Only at Epcot. (laughs) Yeah. But that's what Epcot was like. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'll be, be thinking about that one for a while. Well, yeah, I mean, what? This was such a massive construction process. Everything was running behind. You guys were working nonstop. I mean, you've talked about like working in the middle of the night, working all the time, taking these naps and everything. I mean, just what was life like on the on that construction site? Um, you know, I didn't see it as a problem. It was always interesting. Yeah. Um, they didn't want us using the bathrooms, even though they had finished the bathrooms, because they were afraid that construction workers would just write graffiti all over them and <laughs> set them on know, fire. And yeah, or, or do something. So they were upset that they couldn't use the real bathrooms because they were done. Uh, they were like so the first thing done, but. You could see some pavilions uh, being built faster than others. Um, we were just curious, like everybody else, like you'd want to sneak over and, you know, go walk through and see, you know, what's at the Imagination Pavilion. And I, we'd go over and see Doug Griffith, who was the other animator, and he'd be over working on the Imagination Pavilion or Spaceship Earth. I did do some figures in Spaceship Earth. Um, there was Leonardo da Vinci with the guy with the kite I had to do and um, the printing press scene and things like that. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't anything, you know, to write home to mom about, but it was, it was horrible walking up those stairs with the Anacon and equipment just to program it and move all that equipment. And um, whenever we had to like move all equipment in the Anaconda up and down stairs, we really hated that. Um, I bet. And, and 
we kind of learned our lesson, you know, down the road. They eventually had uh, Steve Silverstein, um, his nickname Mouse, to, um, they worked on a smaller Anacon, this little gray one that was much lighter in weight and easier to transport when you had to go up and down stairs. Because a show like um, Big Thunder Railroad or something like that, where you had to go up and down hills and, and the Anacon with a little tiny folding table, that big, heavy Anacon was just a nightmare to work with. And I actually threw out my back and hurt it really bad once trying to move the Anacon in Pirates of the Caribbean and um, in Paris. Because I, I couldn't get Eric Swap to help me that day. Um, uh, he was busy with other stuff. And, he, you know, he, he thought I could heal it myself, I guess. But it turns out I, I couldn't. It was a really tight spot, and I was trying to program the sword fighters over there. Mm -hmm. I had to reprogram them. Doug Griffith actually programmed the sword fighters fighting. It was my idea, and I came up with the scene. It was one of my ideas, and I thought it was possible to do this. But unfortunately, um, somebody gave the wrong direction to Doug, saying, well, let the swords really hit. I didn't want them to hit. We were just going to lay a soundtrack on there mm -hmm. to make it sound like they were hitting because we didn't want them constantly hitting and then breaking the arms and breaking all the mechanics inside. So it's better to just give the illusion that they're hitting and just film it and then lay down a soundtrack as if this, the clinging sounds of the swords actually hitting. Mm -hmm. We actually changed the swords from thick pirate swords to um, the real thin swords, because the thick pirate ones, even though we made them aluminum, they're just too heavy. And, uh, but anyway, I had to program that, reprogram it so that they didn't hit. It, it took me a month to try and fix that, of going in there after working all day everywhere else. And I had to then go in at night after I did my normal job. <laughs> Programming on um, uh, Le Visionarium or whatever they called it. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll go in and, and try and set this up. But the water was in there. So because the water was in there, um, I couldn't set the anacon and the table in the trough where the water was. Right? Because the boats are recycling boats there. So I had to put it in the rockwork directly across the water. And it's just a really tight fit. And um, I leaned over to set the Anacon down. And I was leaning over so far that my back just snapped and, and right there. And um, yeah, I actually dropped the Anacon. But it landed on the table and it didn't hurt it. But uh, yeah, I was really in a lot of pain for like a couple of months. But I kept working. But... <laughs> It's like you, you hated to deal with stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Well, that pirate's effect is so. I, I remember the first time I saw film of that when the park opened, and I was like, now we're really cooking. Now we're really doing some cool stuff uh, because that was such a great effect. We put, I came up with several ideas. I came up with the, the pirate swinging on the rope, and I tried to come up with some new ideas in a, effects that would really blow everybody away the problem was they were really expensive the sword fighter and it kept breaking down and nobody else wanted to put it in the their pirate ride um but it was 
when it was working, it just was really cool. Yeah. Really cool. I remember showing the video to Mickey Steinberg. And when I got back uh, from Florida after Doug had, was just programming it, because they were mocking up everything in the in a Florida warehouse and programming it there. And I showed Mickey Steinberg, and he was just so blown away, and he just had to show it to everybody. But I remember before that meeting, him yelling at me, saying I spent too much money on it. And then after I showed him the video, he didn't yell at me anymore about it. He didn't complain about it. So it, it was, was all going out. into the show. Yeah. I got yelled at and scolded a lot for being over budget. I, I I, I got constantly in trouble for that, you know, because I was in this position of chief animation producer where I was, I took away the Rogers job, basically, you know, after he retired and moved. And Tony wanted me to fill in for him and make sure the figures are built right for Euro, Disneyland, and Star Tours, and Splash, and all of that. And um, I was probably the right person for the job, but I wasn't good at arguing with Mickey Steinberg and the budget people over the money. <laughs> I was not good at that. Because they, they were constantly like, yeah, oh, no, you can't spend that. That's too much money. And that dragon, the dragon in the castle in Euro Disneyland, it originally only had two functions, and they were both digital, a tail and a mouth. And it was just awful. I mean, it was... A complete disaster and tom morris had said hey uh you know davy um put the functions in you need figure it out you, you direct it right i go okay but i don't think they're gonna let me have the money for this but i'll try and tony got behind tom and said yeah yeah dave just whatever you think it needs you do it so i i changed all the functions and i put a whole bunch of functions in i add a flexible neck to it and um <laughs> we got it all in and the budget guy showed up and that was like three hundred fifty thousand over budget or something ridiculous and um uh, mickey just yelled at me and screamed at me and just was furious and right in front of the the dragon and all the maple guys could see me being yelled at and scolded for being over budget and um mickey would go now you cut something out of here right now. You're I want you to cut something out of this show, right? You, know, you spent too much money. You cut something out. You know, he says, cut off the wings. What does the dragon need with the wings? Cut those wings off. I go, I can't cut the wings off. They're already made. It'll cost me more money to cut them off. Right. Well, cut off the tail. What does the dragon need with a tail? Dragons don't need tails. Cut that tail off. That'll save me, you know, 50,000. I go, the tail's already on. It's already finished. It's like, It'll cost more money to cut it off. And then you get really mad at me and be spitting in my face and just go, well, cut something else off. Cut something out of the show. It's like, you know, you're spending too much money. He says, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll cut out some special effects. These dripping water effects. All right. And, and the, the budget guy was standing right there and he's looking at it and he said, okay, that'll save us so much money. He says, what else? And it says, okay, all these work lights. We don't need those. Like, <laughs> cut all those work lights. And he goes, oh, yeah, that, that'll save us a lot. Yeah, he looks at it. says, okay, great, great. It's like, Mickey was then happy. He's like, okay. And so then he left because I cut a, out a couple things, right? Yeah. Well, turns out I needed all that stuff. 
right? <laughs> but I didn't tell him. So when we got to, to Euro Disneyland and started installing the figure and I started had to go in and program it, we didn't have any work lights. So I had some of the maintenance guys go over to Pirates at night and break in there and we stole their work lights and took <laughs> the dragon. And then the, the the pirate crew had to buy all new work lights because we stole them. So that's how that was. That's using your head. There you go. I had I had to get it in my budget somehow. So uh, <laughs> it always requires creativity. Yes. Yes. I, I I wanted to ask about Universe of Energy because that was a show that had a lot of physical effects. You know, you've talked about like working around water. Well, that show had water effects. That show had lava effects. That show had kind of everything. Did that affect like how you did your work? I, I mean, I would imagine putting animatronics in a where it's raining is slightly more difficult i would guess yes you know what's weird is because i worked right next to special effects and i knew all the special effects guys we'd have lunch and mm -hmm. they were all showing me their effects yeah. all the time and hey what's your opinion come over here and look at the fire effect we created and the volcano effect you know mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah david you got, you got to program all this right it was always looked so much better at the WDI building where they mocked it up. And it was just a little bit disappointed when we went to the energy pavilion and actually was there. And I don't know why it lost a little bit, even though it all worked the same and so forth, but we kind of lost some of it. And, um, uh, and I think it had to do with that just big flat cement floor that looked like a football field rather than being in this cozy little dinosaur world. Yeah. Um, but they're all great effects. Um, the special effects crew were just fantastic. I mean, they're so clever. And, you know, how they came up with stuff. I, I couldn't even believe how they even invented some of these ideas. Uh, they were just way ahead of their time. And, uh, the one thing I was really disappointed is after Epcot is after Epcot was all done, they laid it, all those guys off or they quit and did their own thing. And yeah, I know Mark and the guys who did um, Weta, the um, water fountains and so forth, you know, started their own company, but man, those guys were just super, super talented. And I remember when I started working on splash and the, the hopping rabbit, I said, oh, my God, I need all those guys back here because I need their help to help me show me how to do the hopping rabbit and hide the bar and how to hide the effect so that it, you know, it doesn't show the mechanism underneath. Mm -hmm. I had no one to go to. They didn't have a special effects department then. Oh, that's a shame. You know? Yeah, they lost all their really good talent. Because it was so impressive, all that. Who, was, who art directed the energy show? Waithel was my director on it, mm -hmm. right? And he he's the one I went to all the time. So I don't know if he was just in charge of it, but that's who I constantly dealt with. Oh, okay. And, and I had to show all the figures. I, I, I came up with some ideas, and I wanted to change. I wanted to do some um, splash water effects in the water as the dinosaur was moving. Mm-hmm. 
he got really mad and said, no, we, we, we can't add anything new now, right? <laughs> right? We're over budget on everything that costs more money. We can't go over budget. And it was that same principle that he had to deal with that I had to deal with is like, you can't add stuff and go over budget. And um, I didn't realize it then because I thought, oh, this is a really good idea and it'd be easy. And the effects guys are going, yeah, yeah, we can do that. Yeah, no problem. And he's going, no, you're not doing it. Uh-huh. Not adding a water effect in here because he knew that he can't go over budget. Mm-hmm. Or that they were already probably over budget to begin yeah. with. Yeah. Yeah. Were you there for the park opening, Epcot? Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. was that like? You know, the last few days, it was a mad dash to get everything done. Mm-hmm. Things and the little things were like, was it the China Pavilion where they had to paint all the ceiling? They had like a zillion artists in there on scaffolding trying to finish it, and they didn't finish it. But they're working twenty four hours a day trying to paint every little detail, you know, up on the ceiling, laying upside down on scaffolding. Um, and then everywhere there was cement had to be poured. And the construction workers would come by and step in the cement, and then they have to dig it all out the next day and redo it. And that was constantly a problem. And you had to really be on your ball as as, as for where you're walking at night and not walk in a wet cement. Even mm-hmm. though they put up barricades and stuff, you know, people would just knock the barricades over and just walk through the wet cement. They like to seem to not care. And you know, working there, I was like, oh, it's like, oh, my God, I don't want to step a wet cement. I, I know it's out there somewhere. And every now and then you'd, you'd come across it. You know, some big slide that was dirt the other day, and all of a sudden, it's all wet cement, and it's not dry. You can't walk on it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that was constant. Well, I would imagine that you didn't get much of a chance to enjoy the festivities considering you were just burning the midnight oil, squashing bugs, you know? Yeah. There were a lot of fireworks and stuff like that, you know, and and hoopla and and the press had a thing where there's like 80 press people walking through and and they're showing them around everywhere. And, uh, um, but those were usually, um, I'll tell you a funny little story is I was really young looking, you know, when I was doing Epcot, you know, in my twenties and, um, and my hair was long, a little longer than what it is now. And so I didn't fit the Disney clean cut image that Waithel Rogers or Mark Davis or, you know, those people had, Mm -hmm. but Waithel didn't program any of the figures. He didn't even know how to use the anaconda. He, been away for so long he didn't remember how, how any of the buttons worked oh, wow and um but they wanted Waythel to always do the press interviews and i was not to do any press interviews whatsoever <laughs> but so they wanted Waythel to look like he did all the programming right for every show uh-huh. So we would be in World of Motion and we'd have to set up the Anacon with a little black dubatine table, you know, covering on it. Uh, so it looked nice. And we set up the Anacon and all the equipment and we turn it on and, and run it. And I would then have to show Waithel how it worked, which seems so bizarre because he was like my boss. I thought he would know. 
Yeah. And he just forgotten everything. And um, well, anyway, the press would then um, want to have him program live on camera, right? Well, it turns out he didn't know where all the buttons were and how to reset it, right? So they had me hide underneath the table and I would reach up under the black cloth and reach up to the buttons and reset everything without even looking at it, knowing, memorizing, knowing where all the buttons were and move it for him. So they would make it look like uh, that's his hand, but actually one of my hands was mine and the other hand was his. Oh, <laughs> wow. So we had to do that a few times and um, just being sneaky about it, I just hide under the table and run it from there. I'll have to go back and look at the tape, see if I can tell where, where your yeah. hands are. That's something uh, else. Yeah, we made fun of that afterwards. I mean, Eric Swap, he was always cracking jokes. He was always just a character. And one day he there was this guy that was taller than me. I'm pretty tall, 6'5", and he was taller than me. And he was an African-American guy and, and construction guy. And um, hard hat, you know, and the, the orange vest and everything, you know. And I'm not sure what he did in the construction group, but we liked him, you know. We, 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 we kind of became friends with him so far. <laughs> we were trying to get him to be in on one of the scenes in the shows just so we could get him in on TV, you know. <laughs> and we made fun. It's like, look, anyone can be an animator. Look, Wave could be an animator. It's like, <laughs> I, I don't remember the guy's name, and we'd say his name. So he can be an animator, too. It's like, yeah, you know, we put him in the scene. So uh, we were trying to be nice to this guy and help him out and just, because he didn't get any glory, you know. Mm -hmm. People deserved it. Um, can I tell one more story or? Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, when I was working on Pirates of the Caribbean down at Disneyland, right? Um, I was the director for the rehab and um, it had gone downhill and hadn't been taken very good care of. And, and, and SQS and I and stuff, we really tried to really embellish it and want to fix it up. And, so I, because I complain and so forth, um, we got the money and the funding um, to fix it up and um, do a complete rehab. Uh, and I got to reprogram some of the figures and so forth. So we had about two weeks in there to fix it. Well, the last figure I had to program was the auctioneer. And I was doing that whole scene. I programmed everything. And I was trying to do it all in one night, which is really hard. And the auctioneer is a one-minute um, soundtrack that repeats every minute. Um, and that's a difficult figure to program to get it right. But I had plenty of practice on it. And um, so I had to program that um, straight through the night till 8 or 8 in the morning. And right at 8 in the morning, I finished. I got all done. And... Uh, they immediately want to kick me out because they're opening the ride for the public in an hour. So they started packing up all the equipment and they downloaded um, the figure so it played back automatically doing its cycle. And I decided, I was delirious. I was so tired. I, I was like, I hadn't had any sleep in 24 hours. 
Um, I I just had gone all out trying to get everything finished. And um, I wanted to go across the bridge to the other side um, and look at the whole auction scene over where the boat is. Mm-hmm. Right? And right when I'm walking over there, um, the ride operator announces, okay, the work lights are coming off. We're, we're, you know, we're running the vehicles. Uh, work lights going off now. And all of a sudden, everything just went dark. My eyes just weren't adjusted to no work lights. Mm-hmm. I was working with work lights. And and uh, anyway, I took a step the wrong way and I fell in the water. But I fell right where the boat is because I was right on the, the rock path right next to the water. And there's a little angle where suddenly it's not straight anymore. It changes. Mm-hmm right where that angle is, is where I, I kept going straight where rather than turn. And I stepped in the water in between the boat and I got stuck in between the boat, under the boat, in the water, and was literally drowning. <laughs> no. And all the guys on the other side saw what happened, right? And they heard the big splash. And I probably yelled or whatever, but they all ran across the bridge. They all came over and they're trying to reach down into the water in between the boat. And they pulled me out and uh, my leg was really cut up really, really badly because it, it got caught in between the boat and the rock wall. Uh huh. And it really tore off a lot of the skin. But um, yeah, they pulled me out and I was really embarrassed about it. But um, uh, I didn't go to the nurse's office and I should have because uh you know that that water and the algae and stuff is probably not good <laughs> safe no. but uh yeah that was uh i almost killed myself that day so so what we have learned between pirate boats and burning porta potties and uh falling asleep next to the stage this is this is a dangerous profession it is it is yeah well, yeah. we're we're glad you made it out the other side, okay. Well, next time I have other stories, I'll tell you. But uh, on Lincoln and Splash and Bear Band. and that wraps up part one of our interview with Mr. Davey Fine. Jeff, as, as I said at the start of the episode, what a career. Incredible. And I mean, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I felt some kindred spirit with him when he was talking, uh, you know, likening it to a recording studio. It does seem very similar, you know, the kind of amount of concentration and focus it requires. I mean, I wish I could sit down with him and watch him do it in person. It seems so fascinating. All the methods he's come up with through the years and just all the things he was involved with and kind of the fingers out into other disciplines it provides for you into other worlds of, you know, animation and lighting and staging and all that. Absolutely. Yeah. I was fascinated to hear him describe that. And I too wish I could just watch him program something because I think that would be really fascinating to see. And I had not thought about, you know, the comparisons to you know the work you do in a studio. It's very deliberate 
uh, meticulous work and you get really annoyed with people coming in asking you to make things tap dance. <laughs> yeah, and the the break of the focus, that tap dancing story was so funny. It cracked me up. But uh, Yeah, I'm sure you've had a few instances of people like that over the years. Yes, 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 maybe. <laughs> Perhaps I have. Yeah, so I'd really like to thank uh, Davey for joining us. We'll have him yeah, back. thank you. Because, I mean, my gosh, we've only begun to scratch the surface of the projects that he's worked on. Yeah. So many, I mean, you know, we, as he was talking about, you would see Waythel Rogers and Waythel Rogers was so instrumental in the classic Walt period. Um, but he was there for so long and involved in so many things. Davy was, uh, just quite the legacy of his own. So absolutely. It also made me really wish there was a, book or documentary or something about that crew at Cal arts that came oh, to yeah. Disney because waking sleeping beauty covers that period, but doesn't specifically focus on it. But I would love just something specifically about that early eighties period when all those people came to Disney and it was like the young guys cutting up and the old guys kind of like keeping an eye on them. And, you know, all these, all those weird things that Tim Burton did for Disney Channel and mm -hmm. just all these little projects they were all working on. Like when they were working on like Brave Little Toaster and things like that. All that period is so fascinating to me. It is what a credit to Disney that they had them in there. And, you know, these, I don't know. It's just, it is, there needs to be more on it because. Uh, I mean, the array of talent and where they all ended up. And a lot of them ended up coming back to Disney in some form or another, uh, which is the fascinating part. Yeah, it's like Disney wasn't ready for them at that time. But then later, thankfully, a lot of them came back. And yeah, yeah so yeah, just as a complete aside from all the animatronic stuff, that that's really fascinating to me. So, Well, Michael, I've been enjoying, uh, we just did a live stream about Easter and Easter parades for our Patreon people. It's always fun doing these extra monthly live streams for the people who help support our podcast, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. It is a highlight. And yeah, that was a fun one. That that opened my eyes to a few things that I had never seen before. Pretty wild, so, yeah. Like a whole a whole new universe of things for me to explore now. So that was a lot of fun. And yes, we welcome our Patreon backers who make this show possible every month. We really appreciate it. And uh, in exchange, they get, you know, a packet of Progress City swag, some access to some special audio. And at, at a certain level, you know, the monthly live stream where we all get together, have a good time, see some rare video or photos, or just hang out with a good bunch of people and have some fun it's true yeah so thanks to all of you who already support us in that fashion and thanks to everybody who just listens alone but consider Absolutely. signing up for that extra content yes you can join us at patreon.com slash progress city usa and your contributions are tax deductible so that's fun it's tax season it is it is 
Well, you can also get in touch with us at podcast at progresscityusa.com on email. Twitter, Michael is at Progress City USA. And I am at Jeff G. Crawford. And Michael, what are we going to talk about next time? Well, next time, uh, we hope to have more with Davey Fighting about all sorts of things. We've, we've still got to go around the world. We've still got to talk about country bears. Are you oh, kidding yeah. me? Yeah. So, uh, so uh, hopefully we'll have, have more with uh, Davey Fighting for next time. Okay. Well, stay tuned for part two with Davey Fighting. We'll look forward to seeing you then. So long, everybody. Bye.